Thanks for joining us at Fort William Baptist Church in Thunder Bay, Ontario. We are currently working through the book of 1 Thessalonians. In this book, we see the heart of Paul for God's people. It's a yearning for them to walk in the will of God and have close fellowship with the Spirit. As we delve into this book, we will see Paul's burden that the people find refreshment in the God who loves them, that they would fix their thoughts on God's coming, and that they would live lives that please Him, knowing how to live with and before a holy God. So as we look at Paul's words this morning in these verses, we find that Paul's words are direct. Paul doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't hesitate. He doesn't provide a long introduction. What the Thessalonians are doing sexually, Paul wants to talk about, and so he does. Not only are Paul's words direct, but they're also specific. Paul knows exactly what he wants to say to the Thessalonians, and that is what he says to the Thessalonians. Verse 3, he says, abstain from sexual immorality. Verse 4, he says, control your body in holiness and honor. And Paul's words are also authoritative. We can say it like this. Paul's words are not good advice. They're not Paul's private thoughts or opinions or speculations about sexuality and how Christians ought to live. Rather, when Paul came to the Thessalonians, when he, when he first came to them, he spoke to them with authority. He spoke to them with the authority of Jesus Christ. Verse 2, Paul says, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. And as Paul writes this letter, though he's separated from the Thessalonians, he still writes with that very authority, the authority of Jesus Christ. Verse 1, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. In fact, as we deal with Paul's words, as he speaks in Jesus to these people, we come to know the very will of God for our lives. Paul says in verse 8, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God implication in Paul's instruction, we're dealing with the very word of God. And so Paul's words are direct, they're specific, they're authoritative, and these are not the sort of words that we're used to hearing, especially when it comes to the matter of sexuality. As we think about it, up against the current standards of our day, Paul appears outdated. He says things that just can't be said in our day. Just try out some of these lines in your workplace or in your classroom or among your peers. What's going to happen? Well, you're probably not going to be welcome for very long. Paul appears repressive in these verses. He tells us that certain behaviors, certain activities are strictly out of bounds for the Christian. They are not to be done. They are not to be considered. And worst of all, probably the greatest sin of our age, Paul appears threatening. He just doesn't appear threatening, he is threatening, for he calls down divine judgment from the heavens to those who disregard this word that he gives the church. Now, while most of us wouldn't use these words to describe Paul, outdated or repressive or threatening, as we just let these words settle in on us, we read the text, we're just starting to deal with the text, there is something, and maybe it's just a tweak or a twinge, there's just something about his words that, that might trouble us. Maybe for you it's the subject matter. 
As you think about it, sex is one of the most intimate, private parts of your life, and and it seems that Paul is just intruding. He's invading upon this private part of your life, and you, you don't like it. Just leave this part of my life alone. Or maybe it's the setting. Paul, this, this talk, the, the subject matter is best reserved for, for private conversation, off to the side, one-on-one, person-to-person. This isn't a matter, Paul, for the church to be considering publicly and corporately. This isn't something we want to be on the record for, public-facing. Or maybe it's just the way Paul goes about this. He's direct, he's specific, he uses authority, and it just doesn't have the right feel. Paul's not very sensitive with these words. He seems to be devoid of tenderness or or empathy. There seems to be no nuance. He's just black and white. This is the way it is. And perhaps if Paul just changed the way he talked in these eight verses... It would go down smoother. We could just receive it. Maybe if he he came to us with an appeal or a discussion, or maybe he he came to us with a conversation, something with some give and take, and we can move back and forth on this, we could have some improvement here and we could receive these words easier. Or maybe it's just the, the potential for controversy. Paul seems to be ignorant about the trouble that this sort of speech could cause for the people of God. Maybe we should just whisper about these things instead of publicly proclaiming them with loud voice. Perhaps it's best to put this on the the back burner of the stove and have something else on the front burner to be focusing our attention on something else so as not to gain a reputation for speaking about such things. But as we look at Paul in these eight verses, we find that he is inflexible. He doesn't give any give and take. He doesn't budge. He's not going to change. His words are inscripturated and they are set before us, we have to deal with them. Now, whenever this sort of thing happens, when something in the scriptures infuriates the culture or something in the scriptures just just give us a little tweak or a little twinge, there's something there for us, isn't it? And when that happens, when the culture rages against something in the scriptures or when there's a, a tweak or a twinge in us, we ought to investigate it. We ought to go after it. Why is this happening? Or just think about it like this. There's a patient sitting on the doctor's table and the the doctor's probing around and and the the patient twinges. What's the doctor going to do? He's going to investigate. If the the patient gives a yelp, he's going to investigate even further. And so that's what we need to do. And so we need to ask, what is it about these commands? We've got verse 3. Abstain from sexual immorality. We've got verse 4, control your body in holiness and honor. What is it about these words that make us uncomfortable? Well, I've got an answer. A theologian by the name of John Webster writes this, and it's a paragraph, so let me read it for you. I think it's spot on. He writes this. One of the deepest assumptions of our culture is that we have no given nature, We are what we make of ourselves, not what God makes of us or intends for us. There's no creator we're speaking of, no providence, no moral order, no structure to being human. What there is is our will. We are creatures of our willing and in morals and education and politics and medicine and friendship and everything else. What matters is technology, making and producing ourselves as we make ourselves so we are. I think that's right of what's going on. 
We have no given nature, Webster says. We are what we make of ourselves. What there is is our will. As we make ourselves, so we are making and producing ourselves, just like technology. So Paul's words infuriate and offend. Why? Because he is committing high heresy in our culture, point by point, line by line. Paul is transgressing the creed of our day, and he goes for the theological jugular. He goes after the human will. What matters the most, according to Paul, is not what you think or what you happen to feel or what you want or what you think is important or what you might want to become someday. What matters to Paul is the moral, decretive will of God. Everything is dependent on this, verse 3, for this is the will of God. This is the will of God. And those seven words we find in verse three puts Paul at odds with everything going on around us. According to Paul, there is a God we're speaking of, and because there is a God we're speaking of, there indeed is an order to this world. In fact, there is an order to humanity. Hear this, you have a nature. There are givens about you that you cannot escape no matter how hard you try. And not to stop there, there is a law for humanity, a law that encompasses all of who we are and what we do, our morals, our education, our politics, our medicine, our friendship, and whatever else you can think of, God's law circles it all. And all of this infuriates our culture, but it even tweaks us as Christians, and I think it does for two reasons. First, We're swimming in this culture daily. To be more accurate, every moment, moment by moment, we are told, we are getting preached this message, what matters is your will. What is ultimate about you is your will. What do you want? That's what matters. And wherever you go, whatever you listen to, whatever you watch, they're the messages. It's just preaching in your ears again and again. Your will is ultimate. And there's a second deeper reason why this tweaks us as Christians. And the reason is this. This is what sin is all about. Think about the nature of sin. What does sin do? It exalts the will of of man and it casts down the will of God. What are we doing in sin? We're taking up the determination for ourselves. In sin, we attempt, attempt to determine ourselves, our lives, what we want, what we're going to do, who we're going to be. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 says this, sin is lawlessness. And so, Paul's words tweak us because the enemy that lies in our bellies hates what Paul has to say in these verses. And to sin, Paul's words are comparable to bonds and slavery, and we want to break free from it. And so, as we look at these verses this morning, we have some obstacles to overcome as we try to learn what the Bible has to say about sexuality. Both our culture and our own inclinations stand against God's word. We try to subvert it. But nonetheless, we are God's people, and this is God's will, and it's our duty to pursue it with everything we have. And so that's what we're going to do this morning, and we're going to work through these eight verses in two steps. So our exposition of these verses is going to have two steps. The first step We're going to think of like a painting project. The first step is we're going to put down a primer coat. So in this case, we need the best primer that money 
can buy. You can't get the water-based cheap stuff. You need the oil-based. You need the stinky kilt stuff that can cover over just about anything, whether it's smoke or water. And this base coat that we're going to put down is the gospel of Jesus. This text is laden with the gospel. The second step, so after we put down the primer coat, we're going to put on a top coat. We're going to put color on. And this is the part of the project where you can see what you've got. And this is where we're going to find Paul's specific commands about sexuality and how we ought to look in this world. So let's get to work. Let's start with the primer. So Paul, if you're paying attention, repeats the same words four times in our eight verses. And and this word is from the same word group. So we find it first in verse three. He says this, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Then again, he says this in verse four, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. And moving down to verse 7, he says, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. And then one more time, going down to verse 8, he says, Whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And so the ESV, the translation we're working out of this morning, there's different glosses to this word group. We find the word sanctification showing up in in verse 3. We find the word holiness in in verse 4 and verse 7. And in verse 8, we find the word holy. But the, the same word group is lying behind all of these references. And so we have to, first of all, understand what Paul means by holiness. And so holiness is a word that's used throughout the scriptures, but we often struggle to understand what it means. Most often we think that holiness is the absence of something. To be holy is to be sterile or disinfected or sparkling clean. You can picture in your mind a a laboratory void of any germ or contaminant, rid of all filth and, and dirt. Or maybe to change the image, think of a man. Everything about him is put together. His nose is clean. He doesn't do the things that everyone else does. His posture is rigid and straight. His life is is put together perfectly and organized. And if you really inspect him, you pick up his hands and you look at his fingernails, there's not even a speck of dirt under his fingernails. And that's often how we think about holiness. But that is to get holiness all wrong. Truly, there is in holiness a separation from sin, from all the filth and muck of sin. But we have to understand that is not the heart of what holiness is all about. At the heart of holiness is devotion. Holiness isn't a cold, lifeless, sterile thing. Holiness is a lively thing consisting of a a burning heart for God and all his ways, having a soul that breathes after God and a mind that is taken up with God and all that God is. And so we see, what is holiness about? Well, at the heart of holiness is devotion, a heart set upon God in his ways, and the byproduct of holiness is what? It's separation from all sin. And if we confuse the byproduct with the heart, holiness isn't holiness anymore. So we're not pursuing, first of all, separation. We're pursuing God, and pursuing God creates separation. And so with all of that in mind, we can work through all of these words. So let's start in verse 3. Paul says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now we can add verse 4. Paul says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. So very simply, Paul is letting the Thessalonians know, he's letting us know that God has something for these Christians to do with the rest of their lives. 
And whatever they're doing, whether it's work or play or at home, wherever they find themselves out in the city or they're traveling, the call of God is this for the Christian, holiness or or sanctification. Now, when it comes to sex, this is going to include a bunch of entailments, and Paul's going to lay them out in front of us, and we'll look at them in a few minutes. But the main thing to notice is that Paul commands Christians to do this, to give themselves over to holiness in ever-increasing fashion, ever-increasing fashion. And we ought to underline those words in our Bibles because they clarify life for us. It doesn't matter what you end up doing for a living, whether you work a white-collar job or a blue-collar job, whether you got your dream job or you got a job that you really dislike. It doesn't matter who you end up getting married to. It doesn't matter up where you end up living, whether you live in the north or in the south or anywhere else. God commands you to this, holiness. Namely, that you would give yourself over to him in ever-increasing fashion, and that this giving over would take place throughout the entirety of your life, day by day, month by month, year by year, that there would be a burning heart in you for God, and that it would increase and grow and cover your whole life. That's the will of God for the Christian. So move down to verse 7. Paul says, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Now, if you're looking at your Bibles, you can see where verse 7 sits. Verse 7 follows a list of commands. We've got all of these commands about sexuality. And it's on verse 7, following verses 3 through 6, that Paul hangs his whole argument. Why should Christians pursue holiness? Why should Christians in ever-increasing fashion give themselves to God over their whole lives? Why should Christians avoid certain sexual practices? Why should Christians act in a certain way? Paul answers, God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. What Paul is giving us, he's giving us the answer for why all of this is happening. And the answer that Paul gives is gospel. What has God done? Well, if you are a Christian, God has done this for you. He has come in his grace and he has interrupted your life. And when you were living in your sin, you were devoted to anything and everything but God. Your life was devoted to sin and the life of sin. And what God did is he called you to himself. That is, through the gospel of the Son, he determined to have you for himself. What God has done in the gospel is he has claimed you, that he would have you, and that no one else would have you. So you see how Paul's logic is working. Why do we pursue holiness? Because God has called us in holiness. In fact, he has made us holy to himself. You see it. There's a logic to this. Paul is grounding all of our efforts in holiness. Pursue it, chase after it. This is your life's calling in what God has already done for the Christian. What determines our life is what God has done. And this gets really practical for us. Let me put it like this. You cannot live a holy life unless you have been called in holiness. Or to put it another way, you cannot pursue holiness unless God himself has interrupted your life, taken hold of you in the word of the gospel, and purposed you for himself. You can strive all you want. You can strive day after day. You can work with all of your effort. You can sweat and try and read books and do all of these things, but none of it will result in holiness unless God himself has interrupted your life and has laid claim on you saying, you're mine. 
you're mine. And this ought to do something to us. As we're looking at verse 7, this ought to do something for us. And what, it ought, what ought it to do? It ought to turn our hearts to God and make our hearts hunger for the work of God. All of this logic, as we see this text working together, we've got all of these commands from verses 3 to 6, and then Paul lands on verses 7. This ought to turn our eyes up to God in heaven, seeking him and longing for him that he would work so in our hearts, in our lives, because what we need is God to do something for us, something that we can't do for ourselves. And so we hunger for God. But there's something else here as well. We can flip the logic around. If you're in Christ this morning, what is Paul doing? He's calling you to holiness, sanctification. That's the will of God for you. And what is he doing? He is telling you to become what God has already determined you to be. God has laid claim to you. God has called you. God has made you holy. Now Paul comes to you and says, be holy. Pursue it. God has determined you for this. Now get on with it. Be who you are. And so the calling of the Christian life is this, and this is such a joyful thing, to apply the determination of God to every part of your life. And so you can do this very tangibly. You can wake up in the morning and you can look at your body. You can look at your toes. You can look at your legs and your arms and everything else that you can see. And what you ought to do is say this to yourself, this belongs to God. I belong to God. Before you go to work, you can look at your work. What ought you to say? This belongs to God. When you deal with your family, as you have children and a wife, you look at your family who says, these people belong to God. And that's the calling of the Christian life. How do we live a holy life? We, we take the determination of God and we apply it to everything in our lives and we say, this is God's and we offer it up to him with joy and thanksgiving. That's the call of holiness. So we've got one more verse, one more reference to holiness, and that's verse 8. Paul writes, Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And this is such good news as we consider all that Paul has said so far. God has given his Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to Christians. And this means something rather profound for us as we try to live out the holy, a holy life. Holiness is not a work of self-production. God doesn't determine us for himself, give us a bunch of commands and scriptures, and then backs off from us and sees what we will do with ourselves. That's not how God works. We're not left to our strength or our ingenuity. Rather, God has determined us for himself, and then through the scriptures, he calls us to be holy, but he doesn't stop there. An act of utter generosity and mercy, God comes to us, and he gives himself to us in the spirit. That is, by his own grace and power, he might come to us and make us become what he has already determined us to be. You see what Paul is doing. We get so much hope here in verse 8. He gives the Spirit to you. Christian, are you weary in your pursuit of holiness? Are you growing tired? It's been a long time you've been at it. You feel like your resources are dwindling. Hear this. This call is not dependent on your own resources, but is dependent upon God himself. He has given his Spirit to you. Christian, are you thinking about giving up in the battle of sin? 
You're waging the war, but it seems like sin is winning against you. You fight, but you're overcome. And you're overcome again and again and again. Hear this. Do not give up. Why? Because God has given himself to you. And he will bring it through. Christian, are you thinking that this is a long way to go? It is a long way to go. You've got the rest of your life to live to fill out this call of holiness. But there is this hope. God has given his spirit to you. So there's the primer coat. And we've applied the primer coat. And the primer coat is the gospel of God revealed in the Son of God. And now that we have the primer coat down, we can look at the top coat. And we can see now what holiness looks like as it's applied to a very specific part of our lives when it comes to sex. So in verses 3 through 6, we find three interrelated commands. And we're going to pick them up and look at each command. So we'll start in verse 3. So look there with me. Paul says this, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So Paul here gives a blanket prohibition. Sexual immorality is a far-reaching word for Paul, and it covers just about everything. It covers everything from adultery, so when a man, a husband, and a wife break their marriage vows, to fornication, so when people are just sleeping around and experimenting with sex. Anything from pornography to, to prostitution to, to masturbation, anything to do with pederastry to homosexuality, it's this far-reaching word that covers over everything. And Paul gives this blanket prohibition because this is what he sees that the scriptures teach from beginning to end. And as you look at what Paul says and consider the rest of scripture, he's giving nothing new to the church. The only lawful sexual expression is that between a wife and a husband in covenant, in marriage. And everything else for Paul is out of bounds. And so hear this. Paul is super explicit and it's so helpful. Hear this. If you are committing any sexual deed outside the bonds of marriage, you're sinning against the Lord your God. And Paul says, abstain from sexual immorality. Abstain from it. Next command, verses four and five. Paul says, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So Paul here in verses four and five looks out on the unbelieving world and he sees a people who are living unbridled. They're out of control, driving their decisions, driving their lives, isn't godliness or knowledge, rather they're driven along by the passion of their own lusts. And Paul is so helpful here because he's telling us what's happening in our worlds. So think about it, sexual immorality. Our culture doesn't use that phrase, but we can use it. And our culture prizes it and cherishes it and celebrates it. We think in our culture that this is an advancement for humanity, that we're moving forward. And so our culture celebrates it. But notice what Paul does in verses 4 and 5. He mourns this and laments it. And it is something to be mourned and lamented because at its core, sexual immorality is something that debases humanity. This means we live in a culture that has been radically and systematically dehumanized. We're not making progress. We're going down as we give ourselves to sexual immorality. And that's what Paul sees. All of these people are living subhuman. But the Christian is not to live in this dehumanized state. Instead... 
the Christian says no to sexual morality. But notice what Paul does. He doesn't stop there with a no. He also gives us something to do. So you say no to sexual morality, but you also say yes to something. Look at verse 4. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Paul is saying that the Christian must learn how to master his body, guiding and directing it towards holiness and honor in everything. And Paul is telling us what it looks like to be truly human. To be human is to be set free from the the controlling and power of lust and unruly passions. To be human is to be in control of one's body, able able to tell it what to do, to take hold of the steering wheel and to direct it to God in all things, especially so in sex. And so Christian, hear this. Because of what God has done for you in the gospel, lust, Sinful passions, they all have been dethroned from your lives. They aren't in control of you anymore. God has laid claim to you. And in light of that, Paul tells you this. Take the helm of your body and direct it towards holiness. Namely, direct it towards God himself. One last command, verse 6. Paul writes, that no one wrong or transgress his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. So Paul sets his sights on one last matter, and that matter is marriage. And so he asks, well, how might one transgress or wrong his brother? Well, the obvious answer here is adultery. And so Paul's calling the church to honor marriage, specifically marriage vows. He's concerned that husbands and wives would be faithful to each other and to their vows, and that no one would intrude upon marriage vows that men and women would live in holiness, in marriage. And Paul connects this command, and I think he connects all of his commands in verses 3 through 6 to what he's going to say here, a somber warning. And so look at verse 6 again. What is the Lord going to do? The Lord is going to judge those who transgress these commands. So as we think about all these commands Paul has given us, sexual immorality, direct your body to holiness and honor, honor marriage, he grounds it all in a warning. Verse 7, the Lord is an avenger in all of these things. So what is Paul doing? It's striking. Who is Paul talking to? He's talking to the church. And he gives the church a warning. And what is Paul doing? He is changing our field of vision. Because in sin, when we're caught up in sexual immorality, whether adultery or pornography or anything else, what we want to do is we work with all diligence to keep everything hidden away. And we do this because we want to keep everything in the shadows so that no one will see it and we don't have to deal with the consequences of what we've done. What does Paul do? He intrudes. He's telling us that way of thinking is vain and foolish. All our secrets are imaginary. Why? Because nothing is hidden from Jesus. And Paul tells us that Jesus will come and he will chastise the man or the woman who says he belongs or she belongs to the Lord and does not act like it. The Lord will come and avenge in these things. And so that's how we conclude. We've got the text in front of us, all eight verses. And as we think about it, it's a very sober way to conclude. But I want to conclude this way because this is the way Paul concludes this section of teaching on sexuality. He's not afraid as he he speaks to the church. The church is gathered listening to his instruction. 
in this section to let this solemn word just hang in the air. He plays the note and he just keeps his finger on the key, just letting it sit over God's people. And we should receive this as God's gift to us. Because throughout these verses, Paul has given us the truth. He has told us who we are in Christ. Who are we in Christ? We are a holy people. God has taken us for himself. He's told us what has happened to us in Jesus. And he has told us what we need now to do in Jesus. And now he sets before us Jesus and what Jesus will do to those who do not listen to him. And so brothers and sisters, let's receive God's word with obedience and reverence. For that's how we ought to receive God's word. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are thankful for your word and its clarity. We need clarity. And we pray that you would help us obey these words, that we would live wholly to you and to no one else, especially when it comes to our sexuality, that we would direct our bodies to you and that you would be glorified in all that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.